All right, we're going to be talking about an interesting subject, suspended judgment. This probably generates one of the most uh, recurrent questions. How do I know it is God who's speaking to me, etc.? So that's what we're going to be talking about, suspended judgment and other great habits. All right, let's pray as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, again we thank you for the opportunity we have to encounter or to be encountered by the Word of God today. Lord, thank you that you are kind and good and generous and you love us and you deal with us gently and you're extremely patient. You, you suffer long for us. Thank you that you want to teach us and time and again we walk away uh, dismissing what you said or forgetting it so quickly and yet you continue to teach us you do not rail against us you do not become frustrated with us you just keep inviting us back to listen to your voice please speak to us this afternoon each of us need to hear something that is unique and special and, and, and appropriate to where we are in our lives. And uh, we believe that you're a big enough God that you can speak to 150 people all at the same time and say different things because you know us. We, we long to know you the way that you know us. So please speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The cookie story. See if I remember that story. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, a setting I find myself in a lot. Um, uh, you know how when you have to wait for a flight and a flight is delayed, you've got uh, you know, a lot of people sitting in the same waiting area. There was a lady there waiting for her flight and she really was looking forward to these uh, chocolate chip cookies. So she figured that the flight was slightly delayed and, and so she got him. Um, no, 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 no. That's not how the story goes. The story goes, so rewind, erase. This is the way the story goes. She got to the, she got to the gate but um, didn't have enough time to get the cookies that she wanted. Um, but she had forgotten about that and she sat down and she, she, she was reading and oblivious and um, but there were some cookies right next to her and so thinking that she got them she just pulled one and started eating them and um, and then when the man sitting across from her also got into the bag and picked up another cookie and he ate it and she thought to herself <coughs> That's pretty mold. <laughs> and then, and then she got another one, and and she ate it. And, and then he got another one, and he ate it. And so it went like this. And then there was only one left. And and the way that it was working, it was his turn. But he didn't. He didn't take the last one. And so she says, "Well," and got the last one and ate it. And then, um, and then she realized she hadn't bought those cookies. <laughs> um, rushing to judgment can be very embarrassing because she really condemned the man for eating her cookies. Cookies she never bought. It was his cookies all along. And she was the one that was eating them. But she was oblivious about that. We do that all the time. We really do that many times. We rush to judgment, especially when it comes to having opinions about why people do what they do. <laughs> Have you noticed that? The title of this presentation is the opposite of that. Suspended judgment. It's a concept that comes out of the counseling um, arts. Suspended judgment basically says that you make no judgment at all when you listen to somebody's story 
you do not you do not conclude well this must be the reason why this is happening or this is happening because of that you hold back and <clears throat> and it takes some skill to do that because a, a natural human tendency is to rush to judgment right uh, you hold off judgment of what's going on until all the data is in until until the entire story is in. When I was a pastor, people would come to me, and sometimes there were problems with a family and so forth, and I only had one story. And it was a very difficult thing to say, you know, because it was very easy from that person's point of view to find what was wrong. It was always somebody else, my, my husband, is, you know, or my kids, or whatever it is. Um, to hold off on judgment, is to wait until all the chips are in and then evaluate it uh, more objectively. Um, the Good Shepherd himself, here's my point, the Good Shepherd himself, Jesus Christ, practiced suspended judgment. Let me just illustrate that. Listen to this, John chapter 5 verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. As I hear a judge, this is from the NASB. The NASB, you know, you know, there are about seven or eight major versions that you can trust. None of them are perfect. None of them are perfect. Not even the King James. In, in, in case somebody does not know it, Paul did not use the King James. You know, he says, well, I'll use the King James because that was the one that Paul used. No, 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 not, not quite. 1,600 years later, somebody used it. Um, so... Uh, this is from NASB, but it's, it's not as good English, but it's good Greek in, in Hebrew, so that's why it's a good study Bible. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now there's a number of statements like that, particularly in the book of John, where Jesus says that kind of a thing. And it is an amazing statement. Think about it. This is Jesus, the Son of God, holy, undefiled, powerful, beyond comprehension, and he says, I can do nothing. I can do nothing of my own initiative. Give me a break. I can do a whole bunch of things of my own initiative, and I'm just a mere human being. How can he say, I can do nothing of my own initiative? Why? Because he has made a choice, a conscious choice. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is right, because I don't seek my own, my own will, but the will of my Father. In other words, even though he, as God, could make every decision, and every one of those decisions would be right, right? About three of you agree? All of those decisions would be right, because he is God, he's perfect, right? He chooses not to make those decisions and to defer to his father. And as he hears from his father, then he makes those decisions. So he suspends judgment. Here's God saying, I am not going to evaluate this. Here's God saying, I am not going to, 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 uh, to make a decision about this until I hear from my father. That's an amazing thing. Think about that. That is an amazing thing. I know what some of you are thinking. He says, boy, if I had that kind of an attitude, I would ne never get anything done. You know, because I always have to wait for somebody else to tell me what to do. And yet, Ellen White says that no one on the earth was so busy, she doesn't use that word, had so much responsibilities that he had to meet on a daily basis as Jesus. You can read that in the third chapter of Ministry of Healing. This is a messianic prophecy from Isaiah chapter 11 giving that uh, another picture of this concept. Then a shoot will spring from Jesse. By the way, that word shoot is, is, uh, is, is the root word for the word Nazareth. It's a little play on words, too. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the seven spirits, you know, remember the seven spirits in, in Revelation chapter 1, etc.? Here's the, here's the fullness of the Spirit of God in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah. Alright? So how can you fail? You can't fail. And yet it says, And he, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision but what his ears hear. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, you would, you would say, 
you know, you would trust a judgment of Moses or Paul or Peter when he was converted, you know, these great men of God. But Jesus, of course, and yet Jesus himself says, no, I'll hold back until I understand what God wants, what the Father wants. The third chapter of Ministry of Healing is probably one of the most enlightening chapters regarding the habits of Jesus in his earthly life. You want to read that carefully. The Savior's life, this is page 52, the Savior's life on earth was a life of communion with nature and with God. Remember our three, our, th our three process, what God wants to achieve with us first is communication, then communion, then union. Hmm? The Savior's life on earth was a life of communion with nature and with God. In, his, in this communion, He revealed for us the secret of a life of power. The secret of the life of power. In that chapter, it reveals what Jesus did on a daily basis. She said, and I mentioned this already, no one on earth was as burdened with responsibilities as Christ was. So, you can never have the excuse, I am just too busy. God, you don't know how busy I am. God looks back and you say, I don't. You're busy. You think you're busy, huh? You think you're busy. Okay. I'm glad you told me. I didn't know that. No one as, as burdened and busy as Jesus was. First, that secondly, Jesus reviewed scripture and he communed with the Father early in the early morning and at night. And sometimes for hours on end. She says that he came back happy. So those are the words she uses. Happy from hours, notice that, hours spent in solitude listening as a disciple. That's what a Isaiah 50 verse 4 is about. That's that messianic prophecy. When it talks about, you know, he wakes me morning by morning uh, to, to, for me to listen as a disciple. That is in reference to Jesus, to the Messiah. Here's what else she says. He studied the Word of God and his hours of greatest happiness were found when he could turn aside from the scene of his labors to go into the fields, to meditate. And that's why I like this picture. This picture really captures that. To meditate. Notice that. We'll talk about meditation the next session. To meditate in the quiet valleys, to hold communion with God on the mountainside or amid the trees of the forest. The early morning often found him in some secluded place, meditating, searching the scriptures, or in prayer. That's why they couldn't find him many times, you know. So, that daily process, the daily process Jesus experienced was from busyness, no one was as busy, to happiness. Because she says that he came back from these little sessions with his father, full, happy. Hmm? Happy. And from incertitude, what, what am I supposed to do? To complete confidence. I know exactly what I need to do. You know, if somebody gave you a formula like that, says, every time you really come to God, you're going to lay down your busyness and you're going to come out of that place happy. And every time you're going to go into not knowing what to do, and you're going to come out of it with absolute confidence as to what to do, wouldn't, wouldn't you say, well, give me that. How much do I need to pay for that? I'll pay whatever it takes. This is the Pole of Siloam. It was discovered only about two years ago. This is a major discovery in Jerusalem. Um, Michael Hosel is a good friend of mine. We work together in, at Southern. And uh, I remember him mentioning that, um, he's an archaeologist, mentioning that there's probably more really, really major, valuable archaeological stuff underneath Jerusalem than anywhere else in the entire world all put together. And, and archaeologists agree. Anyway, this is one of them. Remember the Pole Siloam? That's where, that's where the people uh, uh, gathered in order to be healed, remember, you know, when they, they felt that the, the angels uh, would move the waters and then they would dive in and whoever got there first would be healed and so forth. So you can imagine Jesus, you know, and other people just, these are the steps leading to it. This is part of it that is, has not been uncovered. Uh, we have a very famous story about that in John 5, right? It was a Sabbath morning. Have you ever read that in Desire of Ages? 
Sabbath morning, Jesus wakes up with a longing desire to bless somebody uh, because it is Sabbath. In other words, to really show what it's like because it is Sabbath to bless somebody. And so the Father directs him to the Pool of Siloam. It's not that he says, mini, mini, miny, moe, and where should I go today? He, it's, it's, it's not like he, he figures, well, strategically, that would probably, it's like she says, his father led him there. And so Jesus takes one quick peek at this. This is Sabbath morning. He takes one quick peek and he finds the worst case. And who was the worst case? Well, they probably had seen him all of this time. This is, not, this is only a few months before the end. No, 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 that's not right. This is, only about, this is about a year and a half into his ministry, before he moves up his whole operation to Galilee, mostly. And, uh, but he must have seen this guy 38 years there as a paralytic, you know, day after day after day. And so he goes to him. Ellen White says about him, walking alone in apparent meditation and prayer, he came to the pool. So Jesus is in communion with his father. He's still thinking, talking with his father about when he, come, he comes to the pool. And he finds this guy. Now White says, there, there he saw one case of supreme wretchedness. His disease was in a great degree the result of his own sin. He looked upon and looked upon as a judgment from God. In other words, everybody else says, you know, you can't walk because you are one... Uh, um, sinful, deep, you know, what's the word I want? Deprived, it'll come. Um, perverted, yeah, that was the, the, con the, the, the concept. A perverted, sinful human being. That's why you can't walk anymore. And she alludes to that, that, uh, you know, there might have been some sexual perversion there. Alone and friendless, feeling shut out from God's mercy, the sufferer had passed long years of misery. Alright? So what's happening here? The guy is fully conscious that his, his disease, he has been sick, you know, he can't move for 38 years. And everybody tells him, and he's absolutely believed it, that it is his sin that led him there. And it is the truth. But he lives with guilt, constant guilt, which is even more paralyzing anyway. And that is the judgment of God. And so when he thinks about God, what he thinks about is... You know, I offended him. I, I blew it. I, uh, and that's why I'm in, in this situation. Can you believe, can you, can you imagine what it would be like to live 38 years like that? So Jesus, thanks to meditation and prayer, saw this man and immediately judged this to be God's opportunity, regardless of personal consequences. Why regardless of personal consequences? Because as soon as he would heal, the biggest sinner, sicker person in Jerusalem, what do you think is going to happen? The whole, the press is going to be all over him. This is going to be big news, everybody, and what do we do on Sabbath? What we don't do is heal people. So immediately he, would, he knew, Jesus knew, that this would get him in trouble. And when you read the story, you find that in John 5, you read it by the time you get to about verses 18 or 20 or so, it says that Jesus had to leave Judea and he never came back to Judea and stayed in Judea like he did before. He only came back from some, for some um, um, festivities from time to time and then to die. That's it. Because the animosity against him became so fierce. Because he healed on the Sabbath and because he uh, pretended in the eyes of the Pharisees to be God, you know, do what, you know, you know, just uh, be a law unto himself. After Jesus encounters the crippled man in the temple, the word spreads. And he's taken to the Sanhedrin to explain his actions. For just as the Father has life in himself, he says to them, in John 5, verse 26 and 7, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment. Notice that. Jesus says, asserts that he has the authority to execute judgment. 
to do what he wants. Basically, the father gave him a, a blank check and said, Son, whatever you choose to do is exactly what I would want to do. Wow! And that's what he asserts. And yet, yet, he doesn't function by that big blank check. I can do nothing on my own initiative, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, let me give you another illustration. I don't have it on, on the screen. For instance, in John, Jesus says, remember he says, uh, I have received this commandment from my Father. I, uh, to, he says, I can lay down my life and take it up again. Right? Remember reading that? Well, Jesus only did one of those two things. Jesus did lay down his life. John 19 verse 30 says that when he, when all the scriptures had been completed, fulfilled, he bowed his head, a conscious movement, he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. He gave up breath. Can you give up breath? He did. He gave up. It wasn't the heart attack. It wasn't the injuries. It wasn't the separation from his father, although that was excruciating pain to him, you know, emotional and spiritual pain to him. It was absolute darkness. He chose to die. He chose to die after everything had been completed. He chose to die. So he laid down his life. He literally laid down his life for you and me. But did he take it up again? No. Jesus could have. And he said that he could have because that was the commandment from his father. I mean, it was an authority that was given to him by his father. He didn't. The Bible says several times, Paul says, the Spirit of God raised him up. So Jesus laid down his life, but never took it up again. He allowed God to do that if he saw fit that he should, should do that. This is, a, this is an amazing concept that God, God of gods, would yield, surrender, live such a life of humility before His own Father so that He would not make a decision without His Father's uh, direction. So Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is life Himself, submits his judgment to the Father. He will only judge based on what he hears God say. And that is the point. If Jesus did the... I mean, you, you would think this is quite... this is extreme. Or you would say, well, this is... only Jesus could do that. But think about it. If Jesus... if Jesus, the Son of God, would do that, how much more do we really need to, to operate our lives under the same concept all a, a lot more so right because Jesus even if Jesus did not do even if Jesus did not wait to hear from his father he would still do the right thing wouldn't he but not me I would not naturally do the right thing so I really need to hear from the father how much more we who are not God and who have no authority to judge should re relegate choices, priorities, attitudes, and decisions until we have heard from Jesus. Now, I've, I've laid the foundation. Let me break it down. There are two dangers we need to avoid. <coughs> two dangers we need to avoid. Number one is, diminish this principle. What is the principle? You hear before you judge. You hear before you act. You hear before you decide to do what you need to do. That is the principle. One thing we need to avoid is diminishing that principle to the equivalent of an open-door policy. What does that mean? In other words, when you reduce that principle to, well, whatever open doors, that must be God's will. This is, this is what God is showing me. Therefore, I'm going to go through all the open doors there are. What if that's some, some of those open doors are not the ones you should go through? The other danger to avoid, and we're going we're gonna to unpack that in a minute, the other danger is to widen the principle and to assume that what we hear from God is also what others need to hear from God. Now that is easier to, and that's, 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 more, that's more clearly seen. In other words, God told me something, and therefore that certainly applies to you too. 
you know. Uh, I remember uh, Morris Vinden, you've heard of Morris Vinden, right? We, you're not too young to have heard of Morris Vinden. Uh, Morris Vinden, he was, he was probably the most influential preacher in the Adventist church in the 80s and 70s and 80s. He, he was a pastor of several college churches and he wrote many books, some 30 books or so. Um, he once told a story when he was in, in uh, Texas. He was at a camp meeting and after he spoke one day, a lady came to him and she said to him, Pastor, God told me that we should be married. Now, he was married already and so forth. God told me that we should be married. And uh, so he, without missing a beat, he simply answered, Well, as soon as God tells me that we should be married, we shall be married. <laughs> In other words, you know, the fact that God may have said something to you does not necessarily apply to other people. Hmm? And uh, so, so that's, that's something that we need to keep in mind. Let's, 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 let's talk about the problems with the open door policy, which is very customary for us as Christians. Many, many times we do that. If decision making were based entirely on open doors, people would not need to exercise faith. All you need to do is look for open doors. And that doesn't require a great deal of faith. It just requires good vision. Yeah, where are the doors? Oh yeah, I can see that open, so I'll go there. I'll go through that. You would not really need to have a strong relationship with God because you would not be faced with trying to uh, interpret whether God is really behind this or not. You would simply look for open doors. And there are a lot of sincere Christians who, who live their lives with that. With that. It, and open doors is not bad sometimes. But a constant attitude of, well, as soon as I see an open door, I'll go through it. That may not be God's will. The devil can open doors too. Christians would trade God-seeking for door-watching. Uh, it's a lot easier, obviously. I'll just look for an open door. But uh, it's more complex when we really need to search God and uh, try to understand. There would be no point to Christ's admonition, seek, ask, seek, and knock. Why would Christ say, ask, you know, for my will to be done, seek, and then knock, right? Why would He say that, and, and then it shall be open to do? Why would He go through a process uh, talking about doors that need to be open? What this text is about, Matthew 7, which is repeated in Luke uh, 11, is about something else. I'll, I'll pick it up in a, in a minute. Uh, the Blackabees have written this book, Hearing God's Voice, that is, is worthwhile. Uh, much of what Henry Blackaby, the father, has written is worth reading. Probably the best book he has written was the first major book he, that made him famous. Somebody help me, what's the name of that book? Hmm? Experiencing God, yes. A very, very, very good book. Very good book, in many ways better than many uh, from our own presses. Uh, very, very um, biblical, uh, very bold about trusting God. The whole concept of find, find out where God is at work and join Him there. That's a very, very good concept. In other words, don't try to get God to do something that you think is a good thing to do. Find out where God is at work already. And then simply join Him there. Instead of having, you know, trying to get God to make a detour for you. No, you just join Him where He's at. Already. Anyway, he said, they said, Christians must never lose sight of the huge difference between doing what God specifically tells us to do and merely doing what makes the most sense. I, I, I make a big speech about this when I, talk, when I make this type of a reference to church leaders, you know. Um, um, I, 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 I meet with uh, leaders often and, and we deal with issues in the church. And it is very common, it is very logical for board me, boards and, and, and uh, groups of people leaders, people that are decision-making people, to make decisions based on what makes the most sense. 
you evaluate the situation, boom, 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 it says, well, this makes sense. Well, if you make a decision based on good sense, it certainly beats making a decision based on bad sense. Yeah, that's, that's good. But that's not the best. God may want you to go in a direction that, is, that defies common sense. Knowing that, knowing the difference between common sense, you know, it's good to get to common sense, that takes some, some doing there too. That's good. So long for and pray for common sense and practice it. But to, to go from there to what God really wants me to do may go beyond common sense. And it may not make sense at all at times. Not even to you. Jesus made a number of decisions sometimes that defied common sense. And the disciples says, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Remember when, when, the, when the sister says, you know, the one whom you love is sick, come and, come and heal him. And the decision he made was to stay put. Does that make sense? No. It doesn't make sense. If you're a pastor, somebody's crying out to you and says, you know, come and says, no, I think I'll stay. <laughs> you know? Well, how nice. You know? And then, and then once you find out he's dead, he says, oh, let's go visit him. Oh, that's cruel. You know? It's like, now that he's dead, you decide to go. But what's he, Jesus is functioning from a totally different perspective. He's not listening to logic. He's listening to God the Father, who assured him he would use this incident for the glory of God. He still doesn't know what's going to happen to Lazarus, but, when, but that morning, Jesus heard from the Father, okay, you can go now. And I'll tell you more about that in the future, but anyway. Here's, here's, a, here's a, a good illustration. This guy is famous in American religious history. Do you, does anyone know who he is? I'm asking you because I forgot. No, no, no. I, I, I didn't forget. This is Dwight Moody. Okay, Dwight L. Moody was uh, probably the biggest uh, evangelist in Chicago, um, from Chicago, in, uh, in, the, in the second half of the 19th century. Dwight L. Moody was a very uneducated man. He spoke with terrible, I mean, terrible speech. You know, he murdered the English language and, and all the fine ladies that would listen would just wince and say, you know, like that. And when he was a young man, he was counseled to please don't speak publicly. It's just, you know, you're just not cut out for this. This is not good. And good enough, he didn't do what made sense, which is because, he, you know, he recognized he had really poor education and poor speech and all that. But he ignored that for what he knew God was telling him. He had a burden in his heart. He could not stop but sharing the gospel with other people. He, he, he could not, he would not stop, he could not stop. God had put a burden in his heart, and thank goodness he didn't. Because God used him. Thousands and thousands of people came to Christ, and they may be in heaven one day because of his ministry. Had he listened to these first church members, then that would have never happened. Another one, this, is, this you know better, right? That's Billy Graham. You know, he just turned 90 years old a month ago or so. 90 years old. Probably the best known evangelical leader ever. And Billy Graham, when he was in North Carolina, right, he was in, uh, I think he was in Bob Jones University. He spent the first six months there or so in a Bible <coughs> college. The president said to him, You want to be a preacher? You're a failure. He, he, he had poor discipline, he, you know, he, he couldn't keep things straight in his mind, you know, he, he, he was not very, prom he was not a promising young man. The good thing is that Billy Graham did not listen to the president, what made sense, but he kept listening to what God was saying, and look at this, you know, millions, millions may be on the shores, on the golden shores one day because uh, he listened to what God said. To every sincere prayer, an answer will come. Write this one down, okay? Gospel Workers 258. 
It may not come just as you desire or at the time you look for it, but it will come in the way and at the time that will best meet your needs. So God makes a, a very clear, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, gives you assurance, you and me, through his servant, that, that every Okay, that uh, every sincere prayer will be answered. Will be answered. It may not be answered just at the time you want it, but it will be answered. Hang on to that promise, okay? That's a wonderful promise. Hang on to it because there will be days when you, you know, you will have no answer to your great longing of a prayer in, 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 in it may be three days and it feels like three years. Okay? And sometimes it will be three years, and it'll feel like three centuries, and God is still not answering. Hang on to that. Remind God. Says, you know what? You've said you're going to answer my prayer. I still don't know what I should do, but you've promised. So you're going to answer that prayer just at the right time when I need to hear the answer, and I'm counting on that, and I'm going to keep praying until that happens. What's the problem with the other, um, the, 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 the other ditch, you know? One ditch or the other. This word is for everybody policy. You know, if I heard from God, that applies to everybody else. It does not give God autonomy, autonomy to do as He wishes with His own. In other words, if I hear God saying something to me, and then I apply, it says, well, now everybody really needs to be doing that because this is what God said. It, I am playing God. I need to let God speak to them. You know that's why we are supposed to be witnesses? You know what a witness is? A witness is somebody who shares what he has seen and heard without interpretation. When you de deal with it at a, at a, at a, in, in a court of law and you put somebody on the witness stand you're asked questions, the lawyer asks you questions, right? And you're supposed to simply share the facts in other words, when you start interpreting, it says, well, this means, or this must have meant that, you know, when you start getting to that, you, you, get, you, get, you get cut off. Even the judge says, hey, stop it right there. Why? Because that's really, that really reflects how the Holy Spirit wants us to work. As soon as we say, this is what God said to me, or this is what God did for me, that means that He, he needs to do, he, this is what applies to you then we are taking God's role, the Holy Spirit's role. What God wants us to do is share just as pristinely and objectively what God has done for you. What you have heard from Him. What you have understood Him. And share that. And then let the Spirit of God take those words and that experience and apply it and say, okay, this is how this applies to you, buddy. That's why it's dangerous. And, and this, this, is the kind of, this is the kind of a sin that is not committed by non-Christians. This is a sin that is committed by Christians particularly. Because God told me and so this applies to everybody. Remember that. God knows exactly when and how each person is able to respond to Him. Now I'm not advocating that you should never share with anybody else what you think God is doing or saying. Not at all. But remember that when God says something to you, it may not apply to other people. It just may not apply to other people. And that's important. So he knows exactly when and how each person is able to respond to him. That's why, you know, when you see new believers and they are so eager to share that newfound faith with other believers, with other family members. And they get frustrated because, you know, they've been sharing that for two weeks and they're still not, and not, not responding. What they forget is that God may have been working with that individual for five years before they got to the point of really responding, except that they didn't know that. And God is working with different people in different, uh, different ways. So the danger is because I heard God speak, I end up assuming you also need to do what God told me. Be careful with that. Hearing from God can be hazardous to your health and that of others, as this picture illustrates. These guys were doing God's will. And God determined that this society needed to be humbled to its knees. Right? 
Acts like the ones in 9-11, for instance, are also done because it is the will of God. But that is not so. The only antidote to this very human tendency is a healthy dose of humility. A healthy dose of humility. And some, some of the things that put off non-Christians faster than anything else, I don't know, they have a radar, a special radar about that, is lack of humility with Christians, with those who supposedly know God. I think that the devil really, really has a has some kind of a special artifact about that because the devil knows that God is, you know, think about this. I'm, I'm, I know I'm digressing here for a moment. Think about this. Have you ever thought about this? What is the most unique characteristic of God? You could say, well, his power, his love, God is love, his, um, his grace, his graciousness, etc., etc. When you really start analyzing that, I have, I, have, I have come to the personal conclusion that his humility may be the most unique characteristic because it would take a great deal of humility to be God. If I were God, we'd all be in trouble. <laughs> but God, who is all-powerful, infinitely able, all wise. He deals with us as a servant, as with the heart of a servant. Think about that. Boy, that it takes God to do that. And that's why those who are humble reflect God most clearly. And that's why secular-minded people who look at Christians and they find any any um, any vestige of of spiritual arrogance, they're turned off. Because to them, it just simply matches what they have seen in the world anyway. It's just a different flavor of it. But when they find a genuinely humble person, they say, wow, that is different. That is very different than... That's not normal. Hmm? Here's the text that I mentioned to you earlier that I wanted to mention that, 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 that is really important. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. It's not, it's not read often. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and, not, and draw near to Him, to listen. And draw near to listen. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few." Wow! In other words, we're dealing with God here. You, you come, you know, with, you know, like gunk busters out here, like, you know, like a bone in China's closet, and that's sometimes how we do it with God. And it says, listen, God is up there, and there's, there's a reason for that, so you don't, you're not destroyed, hmm? and you're down here. So when you approach God, let your words be few. Really have a very humble attitude about that and listen. That's the whole thing. Listen. Draw near to listen. Draw near to listen. That's why it was said of Jesus, the Messiah, He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen. To listen as a disciple. And what would disciples do? That's what disciples did all the time. The disciples sat around masters and they just soaked up everything they could from that master. And you know what the disciples did in ancient world, in Greek world, in Roman world, in, in the ancient world, the disciples, the, the implication of being a disciple was to emulate the master. So whatever they learned, they immediately started teaching it and doing it with other people. And that's exactly what the Christian life is about. But every morning he would wake up so that he could listen as a disciple. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear I judge, my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So ask. Ask for that will. Ask to know that will. Ask according to his will. God, I just want to do your will. Just be be focused, you know, I, I'm not going to mess with other things. I want your will in my life. I, <clears throat> and God, you can read my heart. You know that there are certain things I don't want. 
but I still want your will. I know I'm going to rebel against it. I know that I'm going to resist it sometimes, but deep down, I really want your will. I am saying that I'm sticking my life to it. Even Don't let me change my mind, God. I really want your will. So begin with that, ask that, and then seek that will, His will, when you don't know it. You know, I don't understand what God's will is. I don't really know. So don't just ask, seek for it. That means, that's a, that's a journey of, of discovery. Sometimes you really need to get into this, and we're going to give you, I'm going to give you an example of that uh, the rest of the day. So uh, seek for that. What is it? Maybe God's will is really clearly known somewhere, but I can't find it. Maybe God's will is known, and God says, I want, you to, I want you to find it where I've already placed it. Like a hide-and-go-seek thing, you know. Uh, it's like, I, I, I want you to find... It, uh, I have a gift for you, but it is under the tree. You've got to find it, you know. And we, 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 we have these demands of God. He says, well, no, no, you just give it to me right here in my hand. A little humility, please. And so, if God says, I've already had it, I've, I've got it set out for you, just, just look for it. Look for it. I will guide you even with that. And the process of a search will be a blessing. And finally, knock if God's will is not coming through. It is the equivalent to, let me just uh, explain it this way. Here's an illustration. If you have family in the old country, you know, say that you got family members in Europe, somewhere in Italy or in in Croatia or in Poland or somewhere and you have never seen him but you've come across and says now oh I found out that I have some relatives out there and it'd be neat to see them and you find where the town where they live and so you make it a trip to Europe you know first of all you're, you you get a trip to Europe you rent a car you go to the town and then you're asking you don't know the direction I mean the address you you know the the name but you, you don't you don't know what they look like or anything. But and so you, you you ask and you say, I understand. I mean, this is the name. Do you know anybody like this? And you ask, and then and then when people tell you, you you do that. Some people will tell you right, some people will not tell you as right. You 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 keep asking. I know this is harder for guys because we don't ask for directions and all that stuff. You know, but then you seek, right? When somebody tells you, well, I think it is it is a mile and a half out there. You know, two lights there, and then turn right, and then you sit there. You know, that doesn't make sense, right? When somebody tells you where it is, then what you would do is, okay, you go that way. You seek it. Let's say that after looking for that, you really, really have it zeroed down. Every piece of data that you have points to this one house. And that house is a description of what you have understood from letters or from some other relative or something like that. And you see people inside and it's getting into evening and, and you knock and nobody's coming through. Either because they can't hear you, or because they peeked out the window and they don't recognize anybody. Well, those people look like Americans. Look at how they are dressed, you know, and, or whatever it is. But you have come under the conviction that your search is over. They are there. Those are the people you were looking for. What are you going to do if they don't open the door? Are you going to get in the back in the car again and go back and say, well, that is a bummer, you know, that's too, too bad. We, they didn't open the door. No, not at all. You will stay on that door until they open because you are certain this is the right connection. That's exactly what God wants from us regarding asking for His will, seeking His will, knocking. Once God's will is known many times. Once you really are certain of God's will, that's when things get tough. That's when the door seems impregnable. It's like it's not opening at all, but you better be sure this is God's will. If that is so, knock it until you tear it down. God wants to know how serious you are about doing it. And God wants to let you know how serious you are about doing it. Corrie ten Boom, you know, she was famous because in World War II she aided, her family aided um, Jews, uh, you know, hit Jews from the Nazis, etc. She was, she and her sister were taken to a concentration camp. She, her sister died a horrible death there. 
but she did not become bitter. She forgave her enemies, and uh, and then she had a, a very evangelistic heart, a desire to, like Brother Andrew, to do work uh, among the communist countries. And so sometimes they would find in that ministry great impediments, impossible things. You know what they would do? They would get together with the leaders. And uh, this is what would happen. She would pray, Lord, that's her Dutch accent, you must do something. That's how he, she would talk with God. There is no time to waste. She would quote God's word, own word back to him. Like a lawyer, she would find the statements in Scripture. She would find the promises in Scripture. She would read them. And she would say, with the Bible up in her here, Lord, read it yourself. <laughs> in other words, you can't squeeze out of this one. You promised it. That is good. That is not sacrilege. That is not lack of respect for God. That is good. That brings a smile to God. Now, it would be bad if you do bad exegesis. In other words, if you... Uh, if you just do many, many, many more and put to, to a text and say this is, you know, it has to be something that is clearly what God says about a given issue. But if God said so, then you can hold Him to it. Amen. And He is pleased to be held to it. Amen. Plead for the Holy Spirit, Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons 147, I think. Plead for the Holy Spirit. God stands back of every promise He has made. With your Bible in your hands. Sound familiar? Say, I have done as thou hast said. I present thy promise. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. When with earnestness and intensity we breathe a prayer in the name of Christ, there is in that very intensity a pledge from God that He is about to answer our prayer exceedingly above all that we ask or think. In other words, it is as you keep praying that you become more intense about it. Because otherwise you would quit. Right? Doesn't that happen? So if you keep at it, it's because you're getting serious about this. That intensity, she says, is a sign that God is about to answer that. So many times God doesn't answer right away because He sees that we're not that serious about finding out what we should do. Because if we were that serious, we would just camp outside his door and stay with it until something happens. In order to judge rightly, we must hear clearly. In order to hear clearly, we must get to the right source, go to the right source constantly. And that right source is obviously the Word of God. This is what we're talking about. Process based on two premises. The concreteness of our trust in God... But our trust in God does not come outside of Scripture. That's what Romans 10.17 says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Huh? So the level of our understanding of the Word of God is very important. The less you understand the Word of God, the less you can trust God, the less you can camp at His door and say, you must do this. The more you know and understand the Word of God, the more resources you have to understand His will and to make demands upon God because they are based on what He has said. Let me give you an example of the withered fig tree. Remember the story of the withered fig tree? Hmm? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this and so you're going to have to put your brightest minds at work because I usually spend 15 or 20 minutes on this so I'm going to have five. You remember the story. This was Monday on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus cast out the merchants and so forth in the temple, right? But on the way there, he wanted to eat, remember? And, and uh, what happened was that there were no figs in the fig tree. And the reason Jesus got to the fig tree was why? There was an orchard. There, was, there were a number of fig trees, but this was the only one that had leaves. Fig trees, by nature, unlike many other trees, uh, bear fruit before they bear leaves. It's usually the other way around. So if you, if you have a fig tree that has leaves, it certainly has had fruit. It has fruit. So Jesus sees this one lone tree with leaves and says, Whoa! Good! Must have fruit. 
goes, looks, gets under it, gets under it, nothing. Steps back reflectively and says, let no one ever come to get any fruit from you again. Quite uh, mystical. The next day, on Tuesday, they go back again from Bethany to Jerusalem. And Peter says, look at that tree. That thing is withered up. That's the one you spoke to yesterday, right? Yup. What's happening here? Is it an issue of divine wrath? That's how many commentators talk about it. Is it an issue of capricious, you know, it's like God was upset because he couldn't get his breakfast? There's got to be more to this. What is it? Well, Mark 11.24 has uh, a key to let's, let's open our Bibles there uh, real quick so you have a, a chance to see how that works. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask believe that you have received them and they shall be granted you. That's when they make the comment, whoa, look at the fig tree that you withered, that happened. And he says, yeah, everything you ask for, if you believe, it'll happen like that. And he says, well, you know, not, that was not the last time I, I, I talked to trees. You know, it didn't happen like that. But what, on what basis? What is the context? Look in verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, as if that were easier than withering trees, uh, be taken up and cast into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. In verse 22, have faith in God. So this is what it's all about, right? In uh, verse 12 to 14 is the whole story. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, just like you, just like I withered, just like this tree withered because of my word to it, you can say, you can speak to mountains and they can be jumped into the sea. And that's, it's like, wow. Ah, boy, that's just too much for me to grasp. On what basis, this is what we need to understand, on what basis could Jesus tell a tree to wither up? The, the, the easy explanation is, well, Jesus is God, He can do that, and I can't. Wrong. Why? Because He just told us, you can do that too. In fact, he says, you can say to this mountain, be taken up and go into the sea, and that's what will happen. So Jesus says, no, that applies to all of us. Well, we got to dig into this. How do we get to that? How, 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 how does that really happen? Remember, remember when this took place. When did this take place? When you really examine this carefully. Now, this takes some study, I realize, and we're going to do this in, in, in a couple minutes here. It, t it took me several years. And when I, I, it dawned on me one morning, I said, that's it. Ah! Sunday night, Sunday night, what's happening Sunday night? You know, it, the tree was withered Monday morning, six days before the cross. Sunday night was called the 10th of Nisan. How do we know that? Because the day that Jesus died, which was Friday afternoon, was the 14th of Nisan, okay? That was the final rejection of the Messiah. In Zarvages 581, Ellen White says, word, more word or less, you know, I'm paraphrasing, says, when the sun would set over Jerusalem, the probation of Jerusalem would be over. And you say, well, I thought the probation for Israel was not going to be over until three and a half years later, based on Daniel 9, right? This is not the probation of Israel. This is the probation of Jerusalem. Who lives in Jerusalem? The leaders, the Pharisees, the very people that would crucify Jesus. Those very people, their probation would be over Sunday night, five, six days before the cross. What does that mean when probation is over? It means that you cannot change anymore, right? That your, your, your fate is sealed. Was it sealed? You bet. What happened Sabbath morning? Tell me what happened Sabbath morning. I mean, not Sabbath morning, Sunday morning. What happened Sunday morning this day, the 10th of Nisan? 
Oh, come on now. What happened Sunday morning in the life of Jesus? You know, that Passion Week, you know. Uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus, right? Everybody claiming Him to be the Messiah, the next King, and everybody just crazy over that. What happened at the end of that procession when they came to the, to the, to the mountain and, and, and Jesus was looking over to the temple? What happened? Jesus cries. Now tell me if that is not incongruous and says, you know, this is all happiness, 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 and He's crying. Why is He crying? Why is He crying? Because he knows that the very people that are calling him to be king, they're so happy, are going to condemn him to death in just a few, in few days. He is crying because they are sealing their fate. That night the Sanhedrin met. It met again on Tuesday night. That night they said, we can't handle this guy. Look at all these people. They're going to crown him king. We've got to do whatever it's necessary to kill him. Let's not do it at the Passover. Make sure we do that. You know, but, so that night they sealed their fate by, by nailing the Messiah. What's happening here? Look at this. Exodus chapter 12. Read it. Exodus chapter 12 verse 3 talks about the, the Passover what uh, the Passover instructions by Moses. The Passover lamb was to be chosen by each family unit and that was chosen on the 10th of Nisan. And it was sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan. On the 10th of Nisan the father would choose the lamb from his own flock. They would tie it in, in the front of the house and that would be a conversation piece for the rest of the week talking about the lamb to come. That was the whole idea about that, right? And that lamb would then be sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan. Now the 10th of Nisan was Sunday night. Remember that the day begins in the evening in the Bible, right? So what happened that night? Sunday night, the Jerusalem leadership picked the lamb. Jerusalem leadership picked the lamb. It says, this man must die. They picked the lamb. Jesus Christ. Of course, they're not thinking Exodus 12 at all. But they still picked the Lamb. And why does it make sense that every single day Jesus is coming back to the temple when it was so dangerous to be around in the temple? Why? Because He is the piece of conversation for the rest of that week with everybody. That's why He goes. He cleanses the temple. He heals all of these people. That's why he, 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 he teaches people, thousands of them. Why? Because they were coming from all over the world, literally, for the feast of the Passover. And so He is being highlighted. That's why the triumphal entry. Never Jesus did ever before allowed a big procession like that. Why? He is fulfilling Exodus 12. And sure enough, on the 14th of Nisan, that Friday... He is sacrificed. And that's why the Bible says that after everything had been fulfilled by the scriptures, he bowed his head and died. Alright, what happens here? Now you say, okay, let me try to understand this. The 10th of Nisan begins Sunday night, right here, Sunday night, and then Monday. And then it goes on and goes on and goes on four days until the 14th of Nisan, right? So, the Sanhedrin chose the sacrificial lamb the night of the 10th, rejected God for good. Jesus longed for their redemption and interceded for them. The Bible, no, Desarve just says that that Sunday night Jesus prayed entire night. He prayed for these very people that would who would kill him, for them. As if one last straw, God, could we push this deadline? Hmm? Israel only pretended to offer God to the world, but in reality chose to reject Him. It bore no fruit. The very leaders, the people that were supposed to bear fruit, were not bearing fruit, and they even killed the Master, the one that would be responsible for bearing fruit. And that's why the very next morning, on Monday morning, Jesus looks at that tree and says, That is Israel right there. And sure enough, people are coming from all over the world trying to find fruit, me, the Messiah, and you're not ready to offer them to me. So let no one ever come to you again. My point is, Jesus cursed the tree based on the Word of God. Based on the clear understanding of the Word of God. Not based on some whim idea or because he was upset or because he didn't have breakfast. Look at Jeremiah chapter, he knew the Word of God. Look at what Jeremiah 8 says. 
why then has this people Jerusalem turned away in continual apostasy? I'm just reading portions of that. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, but my people do not know the ordinances of the Lord. How can you say we are wise? Look at the Pharisees. This is the speech of the Pharisees and the scribes. We're wise, and the law of the Lord is with us. But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree. And the leaf shall wither, and what I have given them shall pass away. 800 years before that was written, and Jesus knew the Word of God well. So when he looked at that tree, he says, that's Jeremiah 8, isn't it? Let no one come to you and let your, you know, let this tree be withered, just like God had prophesied. That's how he knew. That's how he knew. In order to judge rightly, we must hear clearly. In order to hear clearly, we must go to the right source constantly. My ability to listen to God well is based on my love for Him, my trust in Him, which is demonstrated by my hunger to understand His revealed Word. And that is up to you. You all, we all have 24 hours, and uh, to, do, to use them is up to us. Do you want to deepen your understanding of His Word in order to trust Him more? That's really what it comes down to. It. That's why the more we know the Word of God, the better able are we going to be to really understand His will in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this, uh, this lesson. Oh Lord, many times we really, we have such superficial knowledge of Scripture. No wonder we know so little about what You want in our lives many times. But Lord, it is clear, Jesus said, that we could do marvelous things, amazing things, if we understood what God has said in His Word already. So please, Lord, lead us to understand Your Word. Lead us to have a hunger for that Word. Lead us to pour over the Word so that we may hear from God. In Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.